ain't no money coming in, ain't nothing going on. Like dudes is really on their way to go to work and get some bread. And here I am up all night with niggas smoking weed and drinking, trying to get this shit, this music shit done. I felt like a loser a little bit, but having that determined, nah, this shit gonna happen. Something gonna happen. You know what I mean? Something's gonna happen. I'm not giving up. Here it comes. Here it comes. You're listening to Fresh Era, a podcast about the legends from the golden era of hip hop. Each episode, we bring you stories from the pioneers themselves as we dive deep into their lives, their struggles, and what it was like to be a part of the most popular form of music before it was mainstream. I'm your host, Craig Smith. Now, these days, if you take a person off the street and you say the name Peter Guns, they're probably going to know him from reality TV. Or you might know his son, Corey Gunn. But those with a keen ear for hip-hop will remember his voice from all the way back in the mid-'90s. His roots trace all the way back to the Cold Crush Brothers in the Bronx. And when he got on, he was on song with Shaquille O'Neal and Jay-Z. He and his partner, Lord Tariq, made a lot of noise in hip-hop and made a big splash on the scene all around the world with their song Deja Vu. And even though Peter Guns grew up loving music and knew he would always do it, it didn't always look like he was going to make it. It's your boy, Peter Panky. I was born in 1969. My dad had five kids before he met my mom. And his wife uh, passed away at an early age. And he had these young kids spread out, living with my aunts and uncles and, you know, whatever spread out. And he met my mother. She had two kids. And it's kind of like the ghetto Brady Bunch, you know what I'm saying? They got together and they brought all the kids back together. And then they had me and my sister and added that to the to the pot. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of energy in that home. Five brothers and four sisters living in one crib and a host of cousins that would come stay there too. The apartment was the fun crib. Everybody wanted to be there. It was a lot of us. And, and it was a happy home amidst the backdrop of the Bronx in the 70s. By the time I got older, seven, eight years old, nine years old, the Bronx was pretty much burned down. The landlords were burning down all the buildings to collect insurance money and get out. A government-sponsored think tank advised the city to close fire stations, and that's what they did. They just let it burn. At one time, every building on the block was burned down except ours. The president, Jimmy Carter, came to the Bronx and he couldn't believe it. He said, I cannot believe this is America. This is even New York City. They was putting fake pictures of people in windows to make it look good when people on the Cross Bronx Expressway driving by. They had fake people waving out their windows. White people, too. <laughs> like, it was just, like, pictures they put in the windows because that's how crazy it looked. And you can imagine, living in this environment, there was a lot of trouble to get into. You know, and we would play in the abandoned buildings and all type of stuff. But me being, like, the youngest boy, I was protected, so I never really experienced or felt any kind of danger or really even knew how bad it was. I felt like I had a good upbringing regardless of craziness. And one of the ways they would insulate their kids from all this madness was making sure that they stayed close to their roots. Both of his parents were from Virginia. So we spent a lot of time in Virginia in the summers and I remember it was time to come back, the depression on my mom and dad's face, riding on the Cross Bronx Expressway looking around like coming from this beautiful country to to hell in the sense, you know. And in order to get through this hell, young Peter Penke found himself resorting to music. Seeing that he had a love for music, his father bought him a drum set and a guitar, anything that would help him cultivate his skills. But as the 70s turned into the 80s, black neighborhoods, especially his, were under attack. These neighborhoods were getting introduced to crack cocaine. My household was ravished with drugs. You know, I had three brothers on drugs. I had the woman I looked up to most, my cousin who raised me basically. As you know, my mother had a lot of kids. She took me another one. She got on crack. This particular brother would just take everything. If you fell asleep, he'd fucking take his shoes off your feet. He takes food out the refrigerator. He was, and I love him. 
and he loved me. I just felt bad, just never could get it together. But there was times I know not being able to even go to school because he stole my coat, or stole my shoes. Or st you know, it was just, just terrible. And more than that, what it did to my mother. I'll never forget my mother sitting me down saying, yo, if you use, if you start smoking weed, you'll graduate to cocaine, you'll graduate, you see what he's doing. And this kept Peter off drugs, but addiction touches everybody around the person who's struggling. I mean, running home, I can't wait to get home and open up my guitar case. My dad bought me a guitar in my dreams. He was gone. Took it out the case and sold it. But luckily for him, there was something bubbling in his neighborhood. The South Bronx is widely known as the cradle of hip-hop, and young Peter had a front-row seat. Well, kind of. He had an older brother who would go to these park jams that the DJs were throwing. And he used to have the tapes from whatever the jam was in the park. Somebody take a ready on recording jams and somebody sell tapes. He would bring these tapes home, and that was it. And I'm like, who's that? That's the cold crush. in my block, in my neighborhood. It was from there. I idolized them. It's, uh, in particular, Grandmaster Cass was my guy, you know, my favorite rapper at the time. This is before Mute, any records or anything, before Sugar Hill Gang or anything. And that was it, man. And I idolized Kaz, and they was from the neighborhood. But to me, they were stars, even though they was just regular, going to dudes that old, older dudes going to school with my brother and them. And this was set him on his course. The minute I heard the Cold Crush Brothers, I knew I was going to do something with that. And I had a couple little friends with me, a little clique, and we used to call ourselves the Little Cold Crush. And then we called ourselves the Vicious Three. And the DJ in that group was, is my best friend to this day, his name Scratch. We called him KNS. Hip hop gave him something to be a part of, a way to be with his peers and express himself in music the way he couldn't before. And I just flew over to that side of things because it was it didn't require me to play anything. I could just write my lyrics and, and poems and, and tell my stories. Back then, my rap name was Pete Lover. We went around battling other little dudes, taking everybody out. And back then, the thing was singing. When we would do our singing joints, I'd be singing Michael Jackson records. My voice was high-pitched, so the girls, the little girls would go crazy. And as he was starting to see people respond to his music, he was hoping to get the same excitement from home. Everybody knew I was going to be a musician. I was a musician from before I could remember. When they got me the drum set, they knew I was going that direction. They knew I liked being a life of the party. They knew I liked dancing. So if it was a school show, she always knew that's what I was gonna do. But unfortunately, when you have a house ravished with drugs, the bar is set so low for your other kids. It's, it's almost just don't use drugs. Just don't use drugs. He was heeding this advice and he had a goal. He wanted to be a musician. Specifically, he wanted to make hip hop music. And as he was out doing this thing as a high schooler, he was also getting an early start at creating a family of his own. I had a baby on the way early. You know, I was a teenage dad. And as you can probably imagine, this changed everything. Music was first, but music wasn't wasn't buying diapers and strollers and, and taking care of a child. And Corey's mom, although she was there at the beginning, she eventually exited. So although we lived with my mother, my mother would make me be hands-on as far as he gotta go to the doctor, he need this, you gotta figure it out, you gotta, you know. And so some of the stuff that I was doing was illegal activities, you know. I never would ever sell drugs. Never touched drugs because of what it did to my family. So to make money, he started participating in the gun trade. 
It wasn't selling dope, but it was illegal nonetheless. In his position, he felt like he had to do whatever he had to do in order to make money for his family. But he always stuck to his code. I didn't have no money to go out for my birthday. And my man Vic gave me some crack vows. I, had, I couldn't do nothing. I couldn't get no shoes. I couldn't take this little girl out that I liked a lot. I couldn't do nothing. He was like, I have no cash on me, but hey, go up the block and stand there. And when they come up, you just get the money and use that because I had no cash to give. And I went up the block and my man's sister came up to me. She was like, you got something? And I was like, and I, and I just gave it to him and walked off. Like, I felt guilty. Pete Lover was getting a crash course in what adulthood was all about. And even though he wanted to be a musician, he would be in the streets to feed his very young family. His son, Peter Corey Panky Jr., was looking to him for everything, and he couldn't let him down. Coming up, the consequences of living a street life catch up with him. And Pete Lover, the gun runner, turns into Peter Guns. And later, he steps into hip-hop stardom and makes it all the way to the top, and so does his son. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Little Giants, Giant Shorties. I've got a few kids living in my house, and I can tell you, their energy is something you can't suppress. When it comes to expressing themselves, you've got to let them shine. They are the culture, so why not let them dress like it? Shopping WeAreLittleGiants.com gives you access to plenty of options for styling your little shorty with the same authenticity you reserve for yourself. Find t-shirts, hoodies, shoes, onesies, and much more. Honestly, you'll be jealous they don't have your size. WeAreLittleGiants.com has the designs that speak to the love we've had for hip-hop since we were kids ourselves. You'll be passing along your passion for the culture when you see your little giant rocking this most definitely t-shirt I'm about to cop for my son, or this notorious RBG hoodie for my daughter. Slide through. Literally slide down the spiral slide and land in their flagship store ball pit at 4675 Hollywood Boulevard. Peace. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back. Peter Guns at this point was a teenage dad with ambition to make hip-hop for a living. He had soaked up game from the Cold Crush Brothers and up-and-coming acts like LL Cool J. The only thing is that as a teenage dad, he needed to make money. The only way to do that in his neighborhood was street activity. Early on when you was little, your friends went and got summer jobs. I went to, you know, D'Agostino's to work in this and that or did little things. But when crack came, you was a fool. Somebody that went to McDonald's and worked a full day was something that you could have gotten 1.2 seconds just going to stand downstairs. That whole day you spent getting on the train and then after taxes, this dude made that in, in, in five minutes, if that. 
that became the attitude, and that's became what deterred people from really going to do the right thing and shit. But since he wasn't doing nor selling drugs, he turned to guns. Man, I have family in Virginia. I have people bringing guns up. So you bring a gun down, you buy, you get a gun in Virginia for two hundred or one hundred and fifty dollars. I'm selling for seven hundred, six hundred dollars in the hood. So although I, I looked at it like yeah, I wasn't selling drugs in the hood, I bought some destruction to that hood. And as he was doing his thing, the realities of the street life began to make themselves clear. A friend of mine got murdered in Boston, and his mom's lived in a walk-in apartment in the Bronx on the corner. They would just gamble in front of that apartment. And she came out and said, fellas, I got to get up in the morning and go to work. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. Could y'all take that somewhere else? Yeah, we going to move soon. And they kept gambling. I'm like, yo, she said, move. So she said, don't worry, Peter, I'm going to call the police. And I said, you don't got to call the police. I'll call them. And I took my gun out and started busting in the head. And everybody was mad at me. So much so that the next day when I came outside, the police just grabbed me. And I had a gun on me. It was nothing I could do. I was caught red-handed. Somebody snitched and said, yo, he got a gun. He'd be walking around with a gun. He was shooting last night. That's just the environment you live in. So once I got locked up, left my son there, he ain't got me or his moms. That was just a wake-up call for me. After that situation, it was go time, musically. And this was the birth of Peter Guns. I'm not going to do no street shit because that's going to land me in jail forever. Anything I do on my record is five years. I can't go get a job now. I'm a felon. I was even contemplating at that point joining the service. And at this point, he had his second child, a little girl. And the music thing seemed cool, but it wasn't making any money. You know, at first, the young lady was all into my music. She would even, like, paint my name and her fingernails and polish PG. But then after a while, no money's coming in. She's like, yo, you got to do something. And it wasn't just her. The belief that I was going to make it started becoming more and more grim. And people close to me even started going, yo, you need to think about doing something else. And that just motivated me so hard, man. I have to show them that I'm better than these people that they're listening to. And to show everybody, he needed to record. Luckily, he had some family that was already doing just that. My cousin's name is Jerry. Went to Boston. He was doing reggae shit. Pops, you know, was Jamaican. They had they set up with bass drums and reggae shit. When I went out there, I started rhyming over his beats. And he was the first one with a fucking 808 DX7 synthesizer. Nobody even heard that he was producing some shit and he was running his drums through a flanger. Shit you never heard. And we created a sound and called ourselves the Pruning Band. That was my first experience with recording and bringing it back to New York. And then my man Scratch had a little two, three, four track and we started doing that. He and his friends were obsessed. They started making music whenever they could. So we ended up forming this group called Posse Deep. You know, I was dancing, the flat top had the dances. It was only a matter of time until they would blow up, right? That shit didn't work. And then somebody came to me, F, Scratch, you know, said, yo, it's a bunch of dudes in the hood formed a crew called the Gun Runners, which made sense for you, guns. You <laughs> so we became the Gun Runners. I put the helmet on my mic and sack and seize. I break back so fat track and freeze. And get up on knees and hit your knees, trick and do what you do. They call me Peter. Oh, you ain't feeling me? I ain't feeling your ass either. Now. And as he continued to perfect his craft, he drew inspiration from the Cold Crush Brothers. Back then, people said the same rhymes over and over. You know, including Cass. Cass didn't have a whole bunch of rhymes. But when he pulled a new one out, it was spectacular. Donald D, on the other hand, could rhyme for 30, 40 minutes straight. Before, that was a thing. I remember writing rhymes. And look how much the notepad I filled up. You know, like, look how much I write. I got rhymes for days. It became a thing, like. And having rhymes for days paid off, especially with a crew like the Gunrunners. It was seven of us. We was Wu-Tang before Wu-Tang. And each member was doing something, selling drugs, doing something. All from the same neighborhood, 174th mostly. And their plan was to make it to the top. We're going to get a deal, and everybody's going to do their thing. Because we was all different. I wanted to go back to doing 
musical shit. This is just gonna get me in. But we were saying the most outlandish shit on this fucking records too, like, you know, the streetest shit you could think of. Yo, Pete, tell these motherfuckers where you coming from. I'm a nigga from the motherfucking fork where they're checking the aim to put a speeding hot bullet in a nigga's neck. I walk strapped and cap niggas in my back. You laugh, but be the first to catch a bullet in your fat ass. Nobody was gonna deny how nice motherfuckers were. And they made sure that you couldn't deny it even when you saw the tape. We picked a different color tape to put out. You could pick your color. We picked gold so people would know what it was. And back then, gold, going gold was a big deal. So we we predicted gold. Just keep pressing up gold tapes. One day we gonna sell 500,000 these shits. They were well on their way and everybody was playing their role. You know what I mean? You had the scratch doing the technical stuff and producing. You had, it was at his crib and it was his brainchild to do it. I felt like I was in charge of making sure the show tapes was done. I was in charge of, yo, let's do this song. Let's try this. Let's try that. I felt in charge. He was getting his feet wet as a leader. And that made sense because he was going to stop at nothing to be successful at music. He was obsessed and he had kids to feed. And with the gun runners, he got the opportunity not just to flex his skills, but also to network. And then I felt like bringing Tariq. I brought Tariq into the fold. Tariq was dating my sister. My sister kept telling me, my boyfriend raps, you gotta hear him, you gotta hear him. I was like, well, that's already too many people in this shit. But once I heard him rap. I was like, we gotta bring him. He's better than all of us. He's that amazing, man. You know, so I brought him in the group and the rest of his He had the belief that he and his friends could make it. And this is the one thing that he wanted to do to feed his family more than anything else. This required commitment and a lot of belief. Belief that he hoped rubbed off on the people around him. I'm sure, listen, man, I'm sure deep in their hearts, it was like, if he don't stop and go get a job to join the fucking service or do something, I'm sure they behind my back was like, what is he going to do? Yeah, kids, he's still down there trying to do music. Five, six in the morning, coming out of, it's not even the studio, it's my man's crib, but his mom's there. We just got to rock out. I would come out of there and it'd be daybreak and people be on their way to school and work and I'm just going up to go to sleep. He was working as hard as he possibly could. The flip side of that is, ain't no money coming in, ain't nothing going on. So trying to mentally drain yourself from not feeling like a bum. Like dudes just really on their way to go to work and get some bread and go to work to take care of their families or go to school to get, a, you know, education. And here I am up all night with niggas smoking weed. They smoking weed, getting me fucked up just smelling the shit and drinking, trying to get this shit, this music shit done. And with no money, nothing coming in and leave. Even one of the dudes who house we was recording, and the only reason I had to leave that early because he went to work. I felt like a loser a little bit, but... Having that determined, nah, this shit gonna happen. Something gonna happen. You know what I mean? Something's gonna happen. I'm not giving up. Good thing he had this mentality because he wasn't gonna stop. Unfortunately, that can only go so far with everybody else. That's easy to say. But when you got family, kids, friends, and you ain't, and ain't nothing coming in, that's some hard shit to do. Like, yo, what you doing? I'm doing this music. Motherfuckers is looking at you like you doing music. How you, you got kids to feed. You got, you got, so... Some of the members went back to hustling. Some of the members went and got jobs. Some of the members went and said, I'm joining service. Some of the members, you know, I'm going back to the streets. It was only me and Tariq that was like, fuck that, we're going to ride this out. And then Tariq got signed. Lord Tariq, the guy that Peter Guns put on with the gun runners. The only one that was left standing with Peter Guns when everybody else decided to go their separate ways. He had just got a record deal. And this was his ticket to success. But where would that leave Peter Guns? He said, I know I did it. And they got, they want me to go out here and work with such and such. I'm going to tell them, yo, 
Pete is good for that. And his first assignment was a big one. Lord Tariq wasn't working with just anybody. He was working with a big-time NBA star turned rapper. Shaq Diesel, a.k.a. After years and years of struggling to make it in the music industry, years of trying to justify why he was doing what he was doing, it looked like Peter Guns had finally made it. And now, instead of rapping in the Bronx, he was rapping with Shaquille O'Neal. Mama, if she wanted to take up front in the frog. Tell them how I want Hey yo Shaq, the world is yours But can I get a city? Gritty blocks, shitty cops, bras with Tiggo Bitty Hit 50 in the Rutgers, mother Is I happy? You calling me fraud, but your bras calling me daddy Shaq had a label called Twism So when Tariq brought me out to work with Shaq Shaq fell in love with my lyrics And, and fell in love with what I was doing He signed me and we became best friends Shaq is godfather to my son Corey Things were starting to look up for Peter Guns. His friend Lord Tariq made good on his pledge to bring him out, and now they were in business with NBA star, movie star, and rap star Shaquille O'Neal. Not to mention, Lord Tariq had a deal with Interscope Records. And as for Peter Guns, he was offered a deal with Shaq's label. And coming up, Lord Tariq and Peter Guns hit the charts. And after that, Peter Guns' life goes from the Bronx to the Grammy stage to love and hip-hop. We'll be right back. Hip-hop in the 90s, it was incredible. It was groundbreaking. And let's be honest here, sometimes it was weird. Gold Rush is Stupidfly Media's latest hip-hop podcast. Each week, your host, Sean Kantrowitz, that's me, will be uncovering a different topic from the golden era of hip-hop. Some of it will hold a special place in your heart. Some of it will be a subject you may have forgotten about. And some of it, well, some of it we're still looking back and wondering, how the hell did this happen? And we won't be going on this journey alone. Each episode features in-depth, brand-new interviews with the artists, producers, eyewitnesses, and key behind-the-scenes players of the golden era, including Graham Poobah, Del the Funky Homo Sapien, DJ Evil D, Fatlip, Hank Shockley of the Bomb Squad, Young MC, David Faustino, Merce, and many more. We all have great memories about 90s hip-hop, but you've never heard a podcast that looks back at it like this. Gold Rush. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. And follow at Stupid Fly Media and at Hip Hop Gold Rush for more updates and exclusive content. Go, 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 go. It's the Gold Rush. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
At this point in 1996, Peter Guns had done what he aspired to do. Since he was a kid, all he wanted to do was make a living making music. This allowed him to take care of his family with his passion. And as he was watching his kids grow up, his kids were watching him live out his dreams. And his dreams were becoming real as he was offered a record deal. Thanks in no small part to his friend Lord Tariq, who got a record deal and introduced Peter Guns to Shaq. I was signed Shaq. Tariq was signed directly to Indiscope. The doors were open for both of them to release records and to write for other artists. And as they were out making money contributing to other projects, they were also working on their own thing. We came back to New York. Scratch called me to his house and was like, yo, listen to this joint I did. Just the beat. Scratch had looped the 1977 song Black Cow by the band Steely Dan. I said, holy shit. So I wrote two verses to it. New York to the heart, but got love for all. Lying, die in the fire where I learned the ball. Uptown is the place where I lay my dome. On the streets of the Bronx where my family roam. Oh, damn it, we home. Peter got a nine millimeter. Drove straight to, to Tariq House and was like, listen to this shit, bro. Play a fool like that, but I love to succeed. See, foes fall flat. Flat, like deja vu. And I got another clip down a deja crew. I got to get on that, bro. So I took my second verse off. But when we paced the hook together, I had already had New York niggas got crazy game, but out of town niggas all the same. Brooklyn niggas get crazy loop. New York niggas got crazy game, but out of town niggas is all the same. Brooklyn niggas get crazy loop. That's because when it's beat, they ain't scared to shoot. Tariq started helping with the rebuttals. And then he was the one to say, yeah, you remember that part? We, that shit you used to say, if it wasn't for the Bronx, this rap shit probably never would be going on. And I said, yeah, he said, let's use that. But if it wasn't for the Bronx, this rap shit probably never would be going on. So tell me where you from. Uptown, baby. Uptown, baby. We get down, baby. I'm for the crown, baby. We would be in Brooklyn on different parties and those places are half sayings. Like Brooklyn and Brooklyn. Brooklyn, Harlem, Harlem, Harlem. You know, so we didn't have nothing. So when they would come to Skate Key and we see them, we had our own shit. So I say, when I say if it wasn't for the Bronx, rap shit probably wouldn't be going on. Y'all say uptown, nigga. Uptown, nigga. We gets down, nigga. We gets down, nigga. So instead of nigga, we put baby. I didn't think nothing of that song. Tariq immediately thought it was a hit. I didn't think so. It was about New York, mostly the Bronx. The uh, verses are like 20-something bars. The hook is 16 bars. It's New York. We'll be hot in the fucking Bronx. It was all about the art for Peter Guns, even when it came down to the name. I'm a huge fan of jazz music, and he's a fan of Prince as well, by the way. But I always like the thought of naming a song something that really has nothing to do with, you know, a jazz musician to uh, name a uh, painting on the door. Uh, you know, you know. so I, I always wanted to do that. I sing the word splat, like deja vu. So I was like... That's the name of the record. Meanwhile, they had friends all around town who were pushing deja vu to radio stations and DJs. You know, back then they was just hungry. These people were, you know, passing the records out. And then, you know, you have Brucey B playing it and Big Cap convinced Flex to play. Things just, just gradually, it was a slow grind, but it happened. And as their buzz was growing, Tracy Waples, a music industry insider, took their music to Columbia Records. She got to Columbia and she was like, that's the hottest shit on the street. I need to sign that. We put our deals on hold. And I just threw Shaq some points and some money off of whatever I make with this project. And we went to Sony. So instead of their deals with Interscope and with Shaq's record label, Lord Tariq and Peter Guns were now signed to Sony, the parent company of Columbia Records. And the song that was going to launch Lord Tariq and Peter Guns into the stratosphere was Deja Vu. But when I went to the label, nobody's walking in the store asking for Deja Vu, Peter. 
They got some for Uptown, baby. This the, re- the reframe is Uptown, baby. You know that song that go Uptown, baby? You don't want to make it hard for them to buy your record to see song. So I said, all right, then we'll call it Deja Vu and y'all can put Uptown, baby. So in December 1997, Deja Vu, Uptown, baby, was released on Columbia Records. And the song that Peter Guns thought would be just a local hit hit number one on the Hot Rap Songs chart. It was also top 10 on Canada's Nielsen SoundScan chart, number two on the UK Hip Hop R&B chart, number one on US R&B hip-hop songs and also hit the charts in New Zealand and Scotland. I was overwhelmed. I actually like whelped up in tears when I got on Hot 97 and it was Flex was dropping bombs on it and bringing it back. Kind of teary because it's almost like a lot of trials and tribulations through the music. A lot of doors slamming in your face. A lot of people losing faith in you. You know, you you even questioning yourself, am I bugging? Like I told you, always trying to press the hood. They were, even when I played that record for the hood, nobody really was like moved by it. But after the record came out nationally, everybody was moved by it. Quickly, the song went gold, selling 500,000 copies. Tommy Mottola and Donnie Ayn and them were saying that, you know, the song is gold now, but if you make regional versions, it'll go platinum. It's stuck, but I refused because I was like, two reasons. LL Cool J told me, keep it authentic. Don't let them talk you into doing that. But when you sit down with somebody as powerful as like a Tommy Mottola, that's the president of the label, you know, he kind of like tells you, look, it ain't no skin off your back to make other people feel good about where they're from and what it is. But the problem with that was like Tariq doesn't sing the hook. I'm the one that have to go in there and do all these different regional versions. Oakland, baby, Frisco, baby, we gets down, baby, I'm for the crown, baby. I had to do that for every damn region and other countries. So I'm in the studio for two days singing this shit, and I'm the one that has to put it in order. It was very tedious. It went from gold to platinum instantly. All that hard work paid off, and they sold a million copies in the States. But as the spring of 1998 rolled on, they still didn't have an album out. So had we put our album out in time, we was dragging our feet and dragging our feet and dragging our feet, so the label just put it out as a single because it was losing the momentum it had. We better sell something because right now they, they, their album is not ready. But had we put out an album instead of a single, we would have sold a million albums instead of, you know, a million singles. And as they were making their rounds, performing around the U.S. and around the world, they started to catch wind of what was going on in hip-hop in the South. New Orleans has an uptown. So Uptown Baby was on fire there. And while they were on a tour with Jay-Z, they stopped in New Orleans to perform. That's when they were notified. You know, it's a group out here. It's a guy uh, they call No Limit. I remember Jay-Z saying he wanted to go on first because he wanted to get out of here. And then I remember them coming to us saying, y'all might want to go next because these dudes are on fire. And Peter Guns, along with Lord Tariq and Jay-Z, all natives of New York City, were about to witness what the South had to offer. And this was a sign of things to come in hip-hop. It, it was like Michael Jackson into the building when he came in and he had the whole place rumbling. It was crazy. With all due respect, he wasn't a rapper's rapper. He just had a movement, a sound, a the South. He sounded like down South. The shit that we used to be like, you hear this country-ass motherfucker? And you could see it shifting. Yeah, and I remember some young dudes there with some cash money, windbreakers on that said they just signed some big deal and um, 
They was coming. And as the year went on, Lord Tariq and Peter Guns released their debut album in the summer of 1998, Make It Rain. Now, when the album came out, if you looked at the writing credits on their song Deja Vu, you might notice that you don't find Peter Panky. This is because before they put the single out on the label, they had to clear that sample from Steely Dan. And since the song was already on fire, Steely Dan had a lot of leverage. Lord Tariq and Peter Guns ended up giving up 100% of their publishing and their writer's credit. But that wouldn't stop them from being nominated for Best Rap Performance by a Duo or Group at the 41st Annual Grammy Awards. Somebody from the label called and said, yeah, y'all been nominated. And you would expect this to be the biggest news in the world, but... It was, like, bittersweet for me because I didn't... I felt like we was on a downward spiral of the album wasn't doing well, but the single was still nominated for a Grammy. And he had additional reasons for it to be bittersweet. I looked at the list, and I was confident that, that we deserved the Grammy, but I was also confident in knowing that the Grammys never played fair with rap music and never and they was going to give the, the Grammy to the most known. And they did. They gave it to the Beastie Boys. And I want to say the Beastie Boys didn't... Not only did they not have a record out that year, I'm almost sure that record wasn't nowhere near what Uptown Baby was to the culture. But win or lose, Lord Tariq and Peter Guns weren't going to see what happened in person. I got a call from Jay-Z and Dame Dash that said, we boycotting the Grammys. They don't play fair with rap music. They're not showing our portion on TV. The performances are limited. And Jay-Z's nominated for multiple Grammys, album of the year and everything. So if he could sit it out, and uh, so I, I stay home, you know, and go to Grammys. And, and the next year, they got it together. So. And as all the hype from their hit song, Deja Vu, died down, Lord Tariq and Peter Guns had an album out that wasn't selling very well. Partially due to the fact that it came out too late, but Peter Guns was also struggling to make the music that he really wanted to make. But I also make pop music, and I make rock music, and I do this and that. And that's who I wanted to be, somebody that could do anything. But when you, when that's the first thing people hear from you and it's that hot and it's blazing, they want that followed up, follow up with that. So our album was a lot of that, but still wasn't, it was me struggling to like impose other stuff on. So the album was mismatched, but it had some good songs. And by this point, they had already been around the block when it came to the music industry. They had seen the bottom, they had seen the top. And they didn't like what they saw. The music industry put such a bad taste in our mouth that we asked to be released from the label. Trackmasters came in and said, what y'all trying to do? Y'all trying to do it again? And what's the now? And we was just like, nah, just let us go. Give us the money. Yeah. Because we didn't feel loved. And, you know, we asking, we getting ready to make music. We, we setting up meetings. And they not, like, really, like, on it like that. And with that, Lord Tariq and Peter Guns disbanded. But this wasn't the last of the music industry for Peter Guns. As he was doing his thing in music, his oldest son, Peter Panky Jr., was honing his skills. And he was really good at it. He started calling himself Corey Guns. Corey became the focal point. Get him a deal. Get him out. Because he's the world going crazy. Did the Smack DVD. Where he's rapping in the back of this car and everybody's going crazy. And they call your name that you got. All sorts of things for your watch. They could cause your brain to get popped up. Off the frame to your watch. They could lose your frame just to stop. Know what all remains when you Young Money decided they wanted to sign Corey. After growing up in the Bronx, becoming a teenage dad, catching a gun charge, making it all the way around the world and back with a million copies of his record sold and a Grammy nomination, Peter Guns never gave up on his dream. And that led not just to his success, but it also led to the success of his son. Eventually, Peter Guns made it back to the spotlight, and his life was on full display on VH1's Love & Hip Hop New York. These days, you can still catch him on television, and you can still hear new music from him and his son, Corey Guns. He learned how to wow an audience with his, with his lyrical ability. And then people start coming to me. They reverse. Yo, 
that's Corey, that's Corey Gunn's dad. <laughs> I still get that sometimes, which is weird. I'm the one on TV, motherfucker. <laughs> Fresh Era is a Stupid Fly production, written and edited by me, Craig Smith. Executive produced by DJ Cheap Shot. Chris Barnett got crazy loose. Sean Berman is our mix engineer. Music by The Math Club. Artwork by Ray Allen David. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you haven't already, subscribe to our show, Gold Rush. Sean Kantrowitz hosts a trip down memory lane as we take it all the way back to hip-hop in the 90s. Make sure you follow us on Instagram, at Fresh Era Podcast, and at Stupid Fly Media. You can follow Follow me at I am Craig Smith. We'll see you on the next episode of Fresh Era.